journeys through the book of Mark. A chapter a week. This is going to take us all the way to Easter. We will end this journey through Mark on Easter morning with Mark 16, which is, surprise, surprise, the story of the resurrection. So that's where we're headed, all right? And in this series, we do not have the time in this space here to usually talk about the entire chapter, and so I'm not going to get to all of it today. Um, I wish I could, because there are three remarkable stories in Mark 5, and if you didn't read it this week, guess what? You still can. It's not like it's gone and the opportunity's missed. I would invite you to do that. Um, And back on the table as well as some suggestions for how to read through Mark 6 this week, starting tomorrow. We're going to read the first story in Mark 5. It starts in verse 1. And I'm reading again out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. If you grabbed a Bible from a chair in front of you, that's the NIV. You probably will still be able to follow along well enough. But just so you know uh, what I'm reading from here this morning. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. Well, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran, and people rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. Well, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told them. 
Wow. That is quite a story. Would you agree? Yes? Uh, in fact, you know, when preachers have the choice in Mark 5 between three different stories, they usually don't choose this one, myself included, because this is a very interesting story. Um, and there's a, certainly a part of it that probably stands out a lot to us with our 21st century sensibilities. And it's this whole part about this person being possessed by a bunch of demons and then being cast into a herd of pigs that plunge down the hillside into the water. Right? I mean, I think that's the part that we're like, what is going on here? Well, Christians have been trying to figure out how to interpret and understand this passage as long as it's been around. And I don't know if you know this, but they've come to some different conclusions. This happens. Christians, uh, very genuine and authentic Christians, read the same passage and come away with different understandings. For example, in this passage, many would read it literally. That this is a story about a person possessed by a whole group of legion of uh, spirits that are evil, and Jesus casts them out into a herd of pigs, and down they go into the sea. It's probably actually the dominant uh, way of interpreting this passage. But it's not the only one. Um, you will find people who come to this story and say, well, hold on. Um, the people of Jesus' day, including the author of Mark, didn't have the same knowledge that we have today, did not have any language around psychiatry or around mental illness, and that's actually what's probably going on here. And what they are trying to do is trying to make sense of this person who is really unwell uh, in a, in in a way that is kind of appropriate for their particular moment in history. Right? So this is what some Christians would say. Again, really like authentic Christians, people who really want to follow Jesus and be faithful to the text would say, this, this is just, we have to understand this is an ancient book written from a certain moment in history, and so it's going to, of course, come at things from that particular vantage point. Now, you might disagree with that. You might not like that. That's fine. I'm just saying, for some Christians, they would interpret it that way. Or here's another option, and there are many more. This is the last one I'll do today. Some would say this is just a symbolic passage. Uh, case in point, what is the name of this group of demons? Legion. Where else was that word used in that day and time? Caesar, Rome, the legions of the Roman army. This is a story, some would say, about Rome's kingdom, where Caesar was king of kings and lord of lords, bumping up against the kingdom of God. And what we see here is that Jesus, bringing and ushering in this new kingdom, uh, is stronger, uh, more powerful than the Roman legions, the powers of evil in that day as they got expressed through the, through the Roman Empire. Now, again, you might disagree with that. That's fine. The point I want to make this morning, if it's not really, really obvious, is that different Christians read the Bible differently. 
Shocking. I know it. But I think we forget this. I do. I think we don't, we don't fully internalize this because we spend, the, the proof for me is that we spend so much time arguing about who is right and who is wrong that we must, don't we, we, we are assuming that there is one correct way to read a story like this. And hear me clearly. I am not saying that you should not hold convictions about the text, about the scriptures. I'm not saying that. I think, in fact, you should have convictions. I think you should have wrestled with the scriptures enough that you've come to a place of understanding at this moment about what, use this example, about what's going on here with this spiritual realm uh, that, that is at play in this story. But I would ask you, can you hold your convictions and hold the possibility that your conviction may not be the whole picture or that you may not see everything that there is to see about this passage? That's really hard for us. We default to, uh, by thinking that we are right, right? Right? That our way of reading the Bible is the right way, the only way, the full way of understanding something. And so we may, maybe we look at this passage and we think, how in the world could you think someone is possessed by an actual legion of demons? That's ridiculous. Well, hold on. Can you hold enough humility to be open to the possibility that this world is full of things that are unexplainable and difficult to understand. It might be beyond the physical that we see. Is, is, are you open to that possibility? Or you may hold a literal way of reading this text, and you say, how in the world can anybody see this as just a symbolic example? Well, hold on. Isn't it possible that in this text that's part of what's going on? Right? Can we have humility around the text I hope that we are those kinds of people who approach the scriptures with humility. Um, and I hope that we are the kind of people that when we encounter scriptures, passages that are unclear or strange, we would lean in. We would lean in. I... I say this because I think in many ways what we do is the opposite. I think we often lean out when we encounter passages that are strange or weird. Do you know what I'm talking about? You ever done this? You bump up against something and you are like, what in the world? This is, I, I can't make sense of this. It's bizarre to me. It's foreign. And so I'm just going to, to put this thing kind of over here, I guess, because it's really odd. When in fact, I think the invitation always of the scriptures is to lean in. It's in the wrestling, actually. It's in the debate. It's in the conversation. It's in the sitting down with the person who sees it differently and learning from them and, and holding your position with enough humility that they might be able to be a vessel through which God speaks to you. I've told you this story of these young men that live in our basement from the country of Eritrea. 
They are part of the Ethiopian Orthodox line of Christianity, one of the oldest branches of the church. Guess what? They're Christians through and through, every bit as much as you and I. And yet, Kibrum sits down with the same Bible that I read and tells me, after going from passage to passage, that there are seven different heavens. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? There are not seven different, well, yes, there are, he says, and da-da-da-da, off we go. Can't I sit with Kibram with enough humility? I don't have to change my convictions necessarily. I can still hold to what I believe, but can I have enough humility to sit with him and, and be willing to at least acknowledge that I might not see the whole thing clearly, that I might need other people to come alongside of me? All right. So those are just a couple of things to say as we get started. It's really not actually the sermon. Now let's go to the sermon. And um, let's, let's talk about, well, it's all connected, but I want to say this as we get started. It really does. It connects to what I was just talking about. I think reading the Bible begins by being curious. The beautiful thing about curiosity is that it requires humility, doesn't it? You cannot be curious if you are arrogant. So curiosity is a beautiful posture to adopt because it requires humility and it helps you lean in, not away, not to check out or dismiss. It helps you lean in. So let's be curious uh, for a moment here about Mark 5 and the story that we just read. Um, And if we are, I think what we might end up doing right out of the gate is asking some questions like, why did Jesus go to the other side of the lake? See what a simple question that is? Verse 1. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of Gerasenes. Why did they go there? What's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee? Who lives there? Right? What could possibly motivate Jesus to head in that direction? Right? And if we explore those questions and we start asking and wondering and, and then doing a simple Google search, Okay, you do not need a doctorate degree. Just search east side of Sea of Galilee. East side, Jesus. You're smart people. Google it. And you'll start to discover, oh, interesting, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, non-Jewish people lived. It was not a Jewish region. Well, that's curious. Hmm. Why is Jesus, a Jew, going to a part of the Sea of Galilee that he knows is not home to any people who are Jewish. Was that normal? Did Jewish rabbis do this regularly? What's going on here? Right? Again, just curiosity, asking some questions. And if you keep heading down your little Google search, you know, you might find, oh, interesting. Um, Typically, Jewish people did not travel to regions where non-Jewish people lived. Certainly um, less normal for a religious leader like Jesus, a rabbi, to travel to an area like this. Why? Well, because people who are not Jewish were viewed to be unclean. And by that, I don't mean like, you know, dusty feet and grimy fingernails unclean, right? Although they might have been that too, but I'm, I'm talking about a spiritual uncleanliness, The Jewish people are very concerned about remaining clean spiritually, holy, 
so that they can stay connected uh, in relationship to God. And so you wouldn't spend time unless you had to in a region where there were people who were not Jewish, who were unclean. So Jesus does it anyway. He travels to the east side of the lake, and we keep reading in verse 2. A man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves. This man's living in a cemetery. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe it isn't. But if you're curious, you start asking questions. What were cemeteries like in this day and time? Who was buried there? How were they buried? Were Jewish people buried next to non-Jewish people? Um, well, the answer is no. Um, Jewish people tried to have their own cemeteries, and if they were buried in the same cemeteries, they were in very distinct parts of the cemetery to create that separation of cleanliness. And even if you were in a Jewish-only cemetery, you would ceremonially wash your hands upon leaving. Why? Because the dead were believed to be unclean, and you did not want to enter back into the world unclean. So you would wash your hands, okay? So we have Jesus in an unclean region, visiting unclean people outside of an unclean place. And he's there intentionally. Notice that. He has pointed his boat towards the east side of the lake. It's not an accident. A wind didn't come up and accidentally sweep them off course. He's headed there intentionally. What about this man? Again, verse 2, a man possessed by an evil spirit. That's how the NLT puts it, an evil spirit. You want to know what the Greek word is? Unclean. An unclean spirit. He's possessed by something. Again, we may understand that differently depending on how we view this, this passage, but we would all agree that this person is not well. He can no longer be restrained by chains. He wanders around howling and, and harming himself. He's unclean. And then just to top it off, we have this herd of pigs. What, what, what is the food you all know that Jewish people don't touch? Pork, right? Interesting that there's not just a little bit of bacon nearby. There are 2,000 pigs. Think about that. 2,000? That is enormous. That is enormous. Which leads some people to go, well, is Mark exaggerating to make a point? That would be one way to read this. Uh, was it literally 2,000 pigs? That would be one way to read this. Was this symbolic, again, of the legions of Rome who would show up in the thousands? The legion was kind of varied over the course of history, but it was in the thousands. Is that what's going on here? Either way, everyone would agree that pigs were viewed as unclean by Jewish people. So what do we have here? Let's just kind of take a stock. We have a story about an unclean people on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. We have an unclean man living in an unclean place. He's remedied uh, through a herd of unclean animals. In other words, if you are Jewish and you are reading Mark or you're hearing this story about Jesus, everything in this story 
is saying to you as a Jewish person, stay away. Everything in this story is shouting, avoid this at all costs. And yet what does Jesus do? Moves directly into and toward the place and the people that are unclean, that that everyone has decided should be avoided. He moves toward them. Now, I know that in 2,000 years uh, since this story, the world has changed a lot. And then again, it hasn't changed much. Because there are still places and people that are deemed today to be unclean, untouchable, ungoable. From a Jewish perspective, you don't go to the east side of the lake, and if you do, you certainly don't talk to the guy coming out of the cemetery, okay? It's a bad idea if you're Jewish. Let me ask you, from an American perspective, what part of the city don't you go into? And if you do go there, who do you certainly not talk to? From a cultural perspective today, what group of people don't you move towards? What group have you been told you should avoid at all costs? Students, let me ask you, from your perspective, what parts of the lunchroom, what tables don't you go to? Which of your peers is it understood that you just don't talk to? Or if you're like me, when you're at extended family gatherings, not Bethany's extended family, to be clear, my extended family, when you're at my extended family's gatherings, who do I just want to avoid? Right? I mean, at all costs. We are people who are trying to follow the way of Jesus. And what do we see Jesus do? He moves toward those that society and religion and culture have deemed untouchable, ungoable. He crosses cultural and ethnic and theological lines, and he does it intentionally. He gets into the boat, and he points it toward the other side of the lake and says, we're going there. And so who do you need to move toward? What lines might you need to cross, and where do you need to point to your boat? The way of Jesus is to move toward those places and peoples that others say we should avoid, and to do so with compassion. You didn't miss that part of the story, right? In this story, there is a person in deep distress and need. Whatever you make of his possession, you know, and and these demons and the legion, we would all agree this is a person in deep distress and need. This is someone not whole, someone who is alone, someone who has been overcome and is in harm's way, and Jesus meets him with compassion. 
and he meets his need. And this is what Jesus is always doing. We've already seen it in the first four chapters. We are going to see it again. This is the way of Jesus to go toward people in distress and need and to meet them with compassion. And so who in your life is in distress? Who in your life is in need? And how might you meet them with compassion? If you can cast out a legion of demons, do it. I'm not joking. Like, do it. If you can do something significant and grand, do it. Be compassionate on the biggest scale possible. But as we considered last week when we were looking at Mark 4, never, ever discount seed-sized acts of compassion. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like the smallest of seeds, and yet it can grow into the largest of plants in the garden, big enough for what? Birds to find rest in its shade. Wow, what a beautiful picture. So what seeds of compassion might you need to sow this week? With whom and where? I want to invite you to pause here for a moment and to to just enter into a moment of reflection on those questions. And maybe it's helpful to close your eyes. Maybe it's helpful to find a posture with your body that's receptive. You know, I think for me, hands open is such a helpful thing. And to just ask the Spirit of God, who in my life is in need and how might I meet them, move toward them with compassion. Not trying to fix everything, not trying to solve it all for them, but just to meet them with compassion. Who is that person for you? Where does that happen in your life? This is the way of Jesus that we are doing our best to follow. It's hard sometimes, and we maybe don't always know what to do, but if we are willing to take the risk and move toward, I think God's Spirit shows us uh, along the way. So how, how does this play out for you this week? Maybe you have no idea and there's not even a person coming to your mind right now. Could you at least be open in this moment to the possibility that something will come this week? And when it does, to just ask God that you would be ready to respond. And then we have this meal. which helps remind us that um, it's not just that Jesus moves toward a man coming out of a cemetery and